So this is lesson number nine of the summer quarter. The title of the lesson is Temple Worship is Restored. So Lord, we thank you that we can look forward to this, that there will be a temple that you will reside in, in Jerusalem, and we're going to learn about that today. Very exciting. So we pray that you give us understanding of this very detailed architectural design that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. The quarterly skips chapters 40 through 42. So 40, 41, 42. And mainly that is Ezekiel was given a vision. This was in the 25th year of their exile. So it was the 14th year after um, when we last talked, 14 years later, because last time we talked was right after the fall of Jerusalem. And now this is 14 years later, and God has given Ezekiel a vision of this temple that's coming. And so the hand of the Lord, this is uh, chapter 40, verse 1, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the city was taken, on that same day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there. In the visions of God he brought me into the land of Israel, set me on a very high mountain, and on it to the south there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And so this now is a vision. And then it goes into this very detailed description of the temple, and that's this picture here. The temple compound is about a mile and a half square, and you see there are three outer gates. Uh, the one in the front is toward the east. Then there's one toward the north and toward the south. On the west, there's not a gate. And then that goes into the outer courtyard. And the gates are like buildings themselves, aren't they? And uh, in, inside of those buildings on each side, there are three guard rooms along the sides. And there's a portico, and it's all very ornate and detailed. And then inside the inner court is that raised area. And then there are three inner gates. Again, one on the east, one on the north, one on the south. And it... It even tells you the number of steps going up. The steps going up to the gates on the outer court are seven and eight on the inner court. And then when you go through the inner gate, you get to the inner, to the, uh, I think that is the inner court. That's the inner court inside the inner gates. And then in there is the altar for burnt offering, which is what we're going to talk about the most. And the only... Uh, furniture inside the temple is an altar. Now that is different from the previous temples, right? Previous temples would have altar. They would have the uh, table for showbread. They would have the lamps and things like that. 
In this, there's only the only thing inside is an altar. So I'm just going to read this. This is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Charles Dyer was the author of this. This the commentary on Ezekiel. Says the only piece of furniture in the temple proper Ezekiel described was a wooden altar, three cubits high and two cubits square, called the table that is before the Lord. Then he has a question Was this the altar of incense in the holy place, or the table that held the bread of the presence? That is the question. The proportions of the piece are closer to those of the altar of incense. Double doors led to the outer sanctuary of the temple and to the most holy place. The doors to the outer sanctuary had cherubim and palm trees carved in them. This is hard to prepare. <laughs> because I was thinking, okay, how am I going to describe this thing? Yeah, it's it's uh, challenging to read. So the... the uh, the time of this uh, vision was 573 B.C. Now, this temple is not a temple from history. Okay? This temple has never been seen. This temple is yet future. This temple is coming. Yeah, it is not in the past. <laughs> And the quarterly is confusing about that. It will go and it will refer back to past temples. Well, this temple has never existed before. This is the design of the fourth temple. Yeah. In, in Isra Israeli history, Israelite history, there will be four temples. Two are past, two are future. The third temple... The Jews in unbelief right now are planning to build. They are that in Jerusalem there's something called the Temple Institute. They have all the plans for the temple, they have all the garments for the priests, they have trained the priests. You know, they're getting a red heifer ready to consecrate the temple. Now, if you look and they, um, use numbers as the reason for consecration of the temple, but that is not biblical because the red heifer, it talks about in Numbers 19, it says they're to slaughter an unblemished red heifer and take its blood and shake it seven times toward the tabernacle. It was the tabernacle at that time. And then burn it. But the tabernacle had already been consecrated when that was written. And now they're saying they need this red, the, the Jews now, today, are saying they need this red heifer to consecrate the new temple they're going to build. So this is outside of biblical revelation that they're doing. This is part of rabbinic Judaism. Okay, the rabbis have come up with this. And uh, but they're gung ho on doing this, and they have two perfect red heifers in Israel now, that were born in Texas. So they're going to build this third temple. That is the temple that the Antichrist will desecrate. Okay, this temple we're studying here is the one Jesus will build when he returns. 
in a few days. <laughs> it will take him a few days to do this. So anyway, that is, uh, that's about it for chapters 40 through 42. So section A then, glory returns to the temple, and that is chapter 43, verses 1 through 12. 43, verses 1 through 12. Can somebody read that one? Okay. Thank you. That's good. Yes. So yeah, the glory returns to the temple. So verses 1 and 2, then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. So remember, the glory of God had left earlier in Ezekiel. That was in Ezekiel chapter 10. Verse 17, and this is uh, toward the beginning of his visions. God took him to Jerusalem in a vision, and he saw this, chapter 10, verse 17, when the cherubim stood still, the wheels would stand still, and when they rose up, the wheels would rise with them, for the spirit of the living beings was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them, and they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. Then in chapter 11, verse 22, he says this, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. So that was when the glory of God was leaving the temple. And here we see it returning again. So verse 3, And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. So what we saw in chapter 1 was Jesus in a pre-incarnate vision riding on the throne chariot of God, which was carried by cherubim. That's what he's seeing here. Okay. Now, he didn't know his name was Jesus at the time, but it's a pre-incarnate uh, vision of him. And he has the same reaction as he did the first time. He fell on his face. That's how we react when we encounter God. That's how everybody reacts when you encounter God. He is overwhelming to us. Then verse 4, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. So that is where he's coming. He's coming. In your picture there, you see a, a stream flowing out of the temple, and he enters in that gate, which is beside the stream. That's where Jesus is going to come. Same gate he left out of. So verse 5, And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, 
And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. So the inner court would be inside of these inner gates on your picture there. So nearby the altar of burnt offering would be the inner, inner court. So they've, he's passed through two of the gates. So the quarterly mentioned that he entered through the east gate. Now, that Ezekiel, as a priest, Ezekiel, remember, was a priest. So he was brought into the inner court, but not into the sanctuary itself, not into the Holy of Holies. Then verse 6 and 7, the Lord begins to speak. Then I heard one speaking to me from the house. So he has just gone in the house. While a man was standing beside me. So this was the angel that was showing him these things. Angels beside him. Someone speaking to him from the house, which is God. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. The house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die. So that's the first time I've we've heard of that, isn't it? That the corpses of the kings were defiling things. So verses 8 and 9, By setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only the wall between me and them. Remember, Solomon built the house of the forest of Lebanon. That was his palace. And apparently it had an adjoining wall with a temple. And the Lord thought that was improper, that it would be adjoining the temple the palace adjoining the temple. And the rest of verse 8, And they have defiled my holy name by their abominations, which they have committed. Remember, the kings were not very godly for the most part. They were, they were pretty ungodly. There were some good kings, but not too many. <laughs> and so they committed all sorts of abominations very near to the Lord's temple. So I have consumed them in my anger. Then verse 9, Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. This is something the quarterly says. In earlier times, the tombs of the Israelite kings were placed on the same hill as the temple, on the Temple Mount. The king's palace and the temple were connected but separated by a wall. Thus Ezekiel was told that the shameful practice of placing the king's graves near the temple, as well as their living quarters, where detestable practices often occurred, would no longer be tolerated. God emphasized that according to the law of the future temple, all the surrounding area on the temple mount will be most holy. So there are not going to be any king's graves on the temple mount, and there's not going to be any palace on the Temple Mount. It will just be the temple in the Millennial Kingdom. In the Millennial Kingdom. That's what we're talking about here. So verses 10 through 12, As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the plan. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them 
the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all its designs, all its statutes, and all its laws, and write it in their sight, so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes, and do them. This is the law of the house. Its entire area on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. So you're to, Ezekiel is to show the Israelites the plan if they are ashamed of their sins. It's conditional, right? Now, in the time of the millennium, they will be, because they will be regenerated, okay? Because that will be after the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, the, na the nation will be regenerated. They will be ashamed of their sins. And so the, 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 uh, these designs will be... Of course, we can look at them now, the designs. Sin makes you ashamed, doesn't it? Yes, sin does make you ashamed. If sometimes it is possible to have your conscience seared, isn't it? Where sin no longer makes you ashamed. A lot of our society is that way now. You know, they think that sin is okay. You know, yeah, you know, everybody's doing it. Sin is okay. And uh, if if you get to that point, that is a very dangerous point to be. Because then severe judgment will come upon you. Because, you know, your conscience is a warning light for things going wrong. Your conscience is a warning light when you, it gives you pain when you sin. Your conscience will give you pain when you sin. It may make you sick if you sin. And um, that is not something to be snuffed out. It's not something to be drugged over or anesthetized. It's something to be dealt with so that you turn to the Lord and acknowledge your sin so you can be forgiven. And then it's all good. <laughs> and then he cleanses you. You know, that is how we're to deal with it. But if you just go on, um, eventually the Lord will judge you. So it says here that the entire area on top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. So my question to you is, are we to be holy as Christians today? Yeah, Vicky's nodding yes. <laughs> That is correct. We are. That's a high order, isn't it? That is a high order. But um, our beloved Apostle Peter tells us that in First Peter chapter 1, verse 15, he says, But like the Holy One who called you, this is to the church, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, so how is that possible? We just have to be in fellowship with the Lord. That is how it is done. Will we be perfectly holy? No, we, you know, because we mess up. But that's why we continue to confess when we do. That's why we have short accounts with the Lord. You know, if we sin, which we do, we... Uh, I sinned last night because I was so frustrated with this 
this uh, Decadron and the, my insulin and my stuff. My my sugar yesterday went like this. Up, down, up, down. And it was unbelievable, and I felt so bad, and I was getting angry. <laughs> and I was getting angry at the Lord. You can't do that. Yeah. I had to confess. I had to confess. But that's how you... <laughs> that's how you are holy. You stay in fellowship. What do you say? Yeah, no, you have to stay in fellowship. So that's how you... Uh, that's how you're holy. You have to confess when you recognize sin. Okay. Thank you. I love you too, honey. So, yeah, you know, we don't describe ourselves as holy, but as Dane is teaching us on Tuesday, Christ is in us. And that is holy. So I'll try to straighten up here. <laughs> anyway, section B is dimensions of a new altar are given. So this is going to be a little architectural design. How about I'll read that part? Let's just uh, verses 13 through 17. And these are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. The base shall be a cubit, and the width a cubit, and its border on its edge round about one span. And this shall be the height of the base of the altar. From the base on the ground to the lower ledge shall be two cubits, and the width one cubit. And from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge shall be four cubits, and the width one cubit. The altar hearth shall be four cubits. And from the altar hearth shall extend upwards four horns. Now the altar hearth shall be twelve cubits long by twelve wide square in its four sides. The ledge shall be fourteen cubits long by fourteen wide in its four sides. The border... Around it shall be half a cubit, and its base shall be a cubit round about, and its steps shall face the east. Okay, so he got that. <laughs> that. That is an excellent question. That's an excellent question. So there is a cubit, and then there's a long cubit. A cubit is from here to here. 18 inches. A long cubit is this much longer, which is 21 inches. Yeah. So this is in long cubits. Each long cubit is 21 inches. Oh, did you measure your arm? Of course I did. So that's how long that is. I, yeah. Um, this is a, in verse 13, um, these are the measurements of the altar by cubits, a cubit and a hand breadth. Yeah, that's 21 inches. 
and its border on its edge round about one span. A span is nine inches. Nine inches. And this shall be the height of the base of the altar. So it's describing it in layers as it goes up. Okay. So the height of the first layer is 21 inches. Okay. And it has a border of nine inches. And then it will go in with a ledge. The second layer is in verse 14. From the base on the ground to the lower ledge of the second level shall be two cubits. So that's going to be 42 inches. And the ledge is one cubit. So it'll go up two cubits, 42 inches, and then there'll be a ledge 21 inches, so a, like a platform on the second level. Then the third layer, which is also in verse 14, and from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge shall be four cubits and the width one cubit. So that now, the third layer, so the second layer is three and a half feet tall with a 21-inch ledge. The third layer is seven feet tall with another 21-inch ledge. And then it goes up to the top, which is the fourth layer. And that is verse 15, the altar hearth shall be four cubits. That's another seven feet high. From the altar hearth shall extend upwards four horns. So on each of the that's square, and each corner has a point coming out on it. Those are the horns of the altar. So this altar is almost two stories high. It's 19 feet. It's a 19 foot altar. It's big. And it says the surface on the top where the um, offerings are or offered is a 21 square feet. 21 square feet surface. So that's 12 cubits squared. So are we visualizing this then? So verse 17 then, the ledge shall be 14 cubits long by 14 wide. In its four sides, the border around it shall be half a cubit and its base shall be a cubit roundabout and its steps shall face the east. So this altar has steps going up to it, which you can understand since it's two stories high, right? Now, how does that compare with the altars in the tabernacle or Solomon's temple, say? Did they have steps? Does anybody know? They didn't have steps. Should they have had steps? They, they did not have steps. There was no steps. Now, and should, do you think they should have had steps? No, I'm probably leading you astray. But this is Exodus 20, verse 26. And this is talking about the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle, and about the, off, the altar of burnt offering. It says, you shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed. 
So not only was there no steps on those altars, but there was a commandment against it. They were commanded not to have steps. That's another indication that this is not the same thing as the the old, you know, back in the Solomonic or Zeri Babel's temple or the tabernacle. This is something that has not been seen for. Yeah, because this would be against the law back in the in the time of Moses. It's another indication that this is a new dispensation that we're looking at here. It is not the dispensation of law. It is not the dispensation of grace. It is the dispensation of the kingdom. Okay? The law will be different under King Jesus than it is now. It, it, you know, it will be much like the way the law is for the church versus the way the law is for the Old Testament Jews. There was a lot of overlap. You know, the Ten Commandments, with the exception of the Sabbath observance, are identical between us and them. But, the, you know, all, all of the dietary laws, all of the ceremonial laws are not applicable to us now. You know, and so there's differences. And so there will be differences between us and the uh, Jesus laws in the kingdom as well. And that is dispensations are very helpful to us. It keep a dispensation is how the Lord wants you to act in the time you are living. If you lived in the time of Moses and you want to and you sinned and you wanted to confess your sin, you would take a lamb from your flock and you'd take it to the tabernacle. You would confess your sin and offer a sacrifice. That's what you did. That was required. Now we have First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, you know, to forgive us our sins. So it's much simpler for us now. Um, so, and as you read through the Bible, you see that the Lord changes these expectations at certain times in history. Okay. For example. In the sermon series, we're in the time of Abraham. That was before the Mosaic Law. So the Mosaic, for, for example, Abraham married his sister, his half-sister, Sarah, right? Under Moses, that would be against the law to do. Under the time of Abraham, it's not. Okay, and so that, because a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion comes with churches trying to apply the Mosaic Law to Christians today. When you try to apply the Mosaic Law to Christians, it doesn't work. We are under the Law of Christ, which is found in the epistles, the letters to the church, the letters in Revelation. And I would say Proverbs. Proverbs goes beyond. It passes through dispensations. Proverbs is general wisdom passes through dispensations. But if you want to know what to do today, practically look in the epistles. The epistles tell you. And don't go to the Mosaic Law. Okay, so that is the dimensions of the new altar.
I think I I want to talk about you know why is there an altar again? Because Jesus has taken care of sin, right? He is taking care of sin. He's taken it away by his own death. And so there is confusion about that. And um, so I want to read something out of this commentary about how they explain why that is. It has to do with these dispensations. So many have objected to the thought of animal sacrifices being reinstituted during the millennium since this these sacrifices, it is argued, revert back to the Levitical sacrificial system, they would seem to be out of place in the millennium. This has caused some to take the passage symbolically rather than literally. Okay, now we do not do that. We take it as it says. However, no difficulty exists if one understands the proper function of these sacrifices. First, animal sacrifices never took away human sin. Only the sacrifice of Christ can do that. And that's from Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. In Old Testament times, Israelites were saved by grace through faith, and the sacrifices helped restore a believer's fellowship with God. So the sacrifice that you took to the altar was the same as our 1 John 1, 9, when you sin. You're out of fellowship with God. Does that mean you're unsaved? No. If you believe in the promise, you're saved forever. But it means you're out of fellowship. And so you have to do something to get back into fellowship with God, and that was a sacrifice. You would bring a sacrifice. Second, even after the church began, Jewish believers did not hesitate to take part in the temple worship and even to offer sacrifices, and then they, Paul gave some sacrifices for a Nazarite vow. They could do this because they viewed the sacrifices as memorials of Christ's death. Levitical sacrifices were connected with Israel's worship of God. When the church supplanted Israel in God's program, it didn't take Israel's place, but the Lord kind of put Israel on the shelf for a while and began to work through the church in this time. Israel's being going to be drawn back. A new economy or dispensation began. That was the church age. The Levitical sacrificial system, which looked forward to Christ, was replaced by the Lord's Supper, which looked back to his death and forward to his second coming. Remember, what do we say at the Lord's Supper? We say, when we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, When he comes, and that's what we're looking at here in Ezekiel, we will no longer do the Lord's Supper because we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So when he comes, and, you know, then this sacrificial system will be reinstituted and it will be again for restoration of fellowship. Um, okay. And uh, so I think that's all I can say about that. It's it's This is a challenging passage, challenging topic. Um, but the, the animal sacrifices in the millennium, remember in the millennium, death will be rare. Death will not be absent. Some people will die, but it will be very rare. 
If you died a hundred years old, people would be sad that you lived such a short time. And uh, so it'll be very rare. And I think this is going to be a reminder that to remind people what Christ actually went through to secure our salvation. These, you know, because killing animals is a little shocking. <laughs> you know, it's a shocking thing. So anyway, um, animal sacrifices will be reinstituted in the millennium in Jerusalem. Okay, section C. Regulations consecrating the altar are given. So can somebody read uh, 18 through 27? Go ahead and read through 27. Amen. Thank you, ma'am. Yeah, so verse 18, he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the statutes for the altar on the day it is built to offer burnt offerings on it and to sprinkle blood on it. Now this is the fulfillment of a prophecy. And the prophecy is Daniel 9, 24. It's part of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. It says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Anoint the most holy place. That is the fulfillment here. The most holy place is the millennial temple. Okay. So that is the fulfillment of that. Verse 19, you shall give to the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a young bull for a sin offering. So the offspring of Zadok, you know why it's the offspring of Zadok instead of just the Levitical priests? This is probably stressing things, but remember Bat. I'm going to read to you a prophecy from 1 Samuel now. This prophecy is was given to Eli, the high priest, when the tabernacle was in Shiloh. Remember, Eli had some naughty boys who were also priests, Hophni and Phinehas, and Eli did not discipline his sons. And so a prophet came to Eli so it's 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house, he's talking to Eli now, and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel, and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping, and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day both of them will die. 
but I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please, assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. See, he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. He will walk before my anointed always. So now the anointed has come, Jesus, in the Ezekiel temple, and he is the line of Zadok. Now this prophecy was fulfilled in Solomon's time. And that is 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 26. Remember, Abiathar was trying to take the throne. <clears throat> David appointed Solomon king. Abiathar, or no, Adonijah, Adonijah, his brother, was declaring himself king on his own. And Abiathar was a priest who went along with Adonijah. So this is Solomon talking to Abiathar. Then to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth to your own field, for you deserve to die. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted in everything with which my father was afflicted. So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Okay? So that was few hundred years later that that prophecy was fulfilled. And Zadok was the line of the faithful priests. Okay, and so this is coming to, to bear now all these years later. So you want to be faithful to the Lord because it's long-lasting. <laughs> you know, the ramifications are long-lasting. So verse 20 of chapter 43, You shall take some of its blood and put it on its four horns and on the four corners of the ledge, so this great high altar, you take a bull, and you kill it, and you take its blood, and you take the blood on these four points of the altar on the top. You put it on the four points blood, and on the border of the altar. Um, thus, and that is how you cleanse it, and make atonement for it. So this is very similar to the altars of the past. You know, they were all consecrated with blood. And then verse 21, You shall also take the bull for the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place of the house outside the sanctuary. So if you look on your picture, just outside the temple there on the inner court, they would burn this bull to ashes. Just in, uh, just outside the temple itself. So this would be very graphic, you know. I mean, if you're there, this would be very emotionally. Yeah, yeah. In your quarter, if you have a quarterly, there's there's some pictures of this, not of the burning, but of the altar. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So this, I I've already talked about why they're doing sacrifices again. One reason for the sacrifice is to point back to Christ, a memorial to Christ. The other is that just as the 
the tabernacle, the altar of the tabernacle, the priests, they were all consecrated to serve with blood, all of them. This is the same. They're consecrated to serve with blood. Everything is consecrated with blood. Um, as servants of the Lord. So, and now, what is the parallel to our day? Is there any parallel to our day? I think there is. What does, you know, we are saved by grace through faith alone for free, aren't we? For free. Jesus has paid the entire price. What does Jesus want from us? Yeah, he wants us to act on what we have, what he's given us. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Okay, so we don't have to kill ourselves and put our blood on something. Thank goodness. But present your bodies acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And how do we do that? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That, you know, it's the same thing in Romans 6. It says to consider yourself, reckon yourself dead to sin. No longer present your body parts to sin to, for use because you're dead to sin. Instead, present your parts to God to be used for righteousness. So that's why we submit to what the Lord would desire for us to do. That is how we are consecrated to the Lord. So Lord, we thank you for this. We pray that you would help us consecrate ourselves now. In Jesus' name, amen.